Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Such a joy and privilege to be able to gather together and sing praises to the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, right? Now, let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Genesis and the first chapter, Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 23 this morning, so... Once you turn there, I'd ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. This is God's word. Then God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the face of the expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be blessed by the reading of your word, that you would change our hearts, instruct our hearts, and speak to us this morning. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. And a well-known and often quoted exhortation to his disciples, the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to the twelve and subsequently to us, perhaps one of the most majestic and consequential of the divine attributes, at least from our human perspective, and that is the omniscience of God. The truth that God is omniscient means that he has all knowledge, that he knows all things about all things, which is the only way he can truly be sovereign over all things. And The means by which Jesus chose to convey this magnificent truth, the illustration he chose to use was that of a sparrow. Again, very familiar text to many of us in here. Both Luke and Matthew mention it. He asked his disciples in Luke chapter 12, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Matthew said in his gospels, in his gospel, and yet not a one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. None of them. Not one of them. Not one of these tiny, little, in many people's eyes, insignificant, even pest-like birds, which sold for mere pennies in Jesus' days, not a one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. This almighty, all-powerful creator of the heavens and the earth, the one we've marveled at together these past eight weeks in Genesis 1, 1 through 19, also knows these little birds. He knows all of them. He knows the sparrows. He knows them from an embryo in an egg. He knows them as a nestling to a hatchling through their first flight as a fledgling. He knows them to an adult, to having little sparrows of their own before they fall to the ground and die three to five years later. He knows every intricate detail of every life of every sparrow who has ever or will ever live, as has been said and sung, And clung to for well over a century, his eye is on the sparrow. So do not fear, Jesus said, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. Comforting words from the Son of God. Such great assurance, such a great reminder of the omniscient or all-knowing nature of the triune God. But these are words which are important to look at in their proper context. Okay, We'll do that later together. Uh, this morning, um, later this morning, but very fitting, I thought, to open up our time together by reminding us of the one who knows the sparrows, who knows all the little birds, who feeds all the birds, though they neither sow nor reap, and is absolutely and totally sovereign over the entire existence of the birds. Why? Well, because he created the birds. Not only does he sustain their lives on earth, but he gave them the privilege of even living in the first place, along with all the other of his creatures, even the fish of the sea. Fish which Jesus also exercised sovereign dominion over. Remember when he told Peter and the others who had fished all night, caught nothing to throw their net on the right side of the boat. What happened then? They brought in a haul of fish so massive they weren't able to 
bringing a board. How is this possible? Well, it's possible because he put them there. In another place, he used a fish as a piggy bank to pay the temple tax. It was a fishy bank. The sovereign God knows the fish. He feeds the fish. He has dominion over the fish. He reigns supreme over the fish. Yet he cares for and provides for the fish because he created the fish. From the guppy to the whale and all in between, they are his fish, just like they are his birds. Fish and birds whose miraculous origins began not as what has been called a fragile blob of protoplasm generated by random chance and explosions and electrical discharges, but as we just read, on the fifth day of creation by the very word of God. So let's dive in now. Let's see what this looked like. Look with me again at verse 20 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the face of the expanse of the heavens. Now, there's something really remarkable there about the transition from verse 19 to 20. If you've been with us over the past couple of months, you'll know we've heard the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. A summation of the entire universe as we know it coming into existence. The elemental components of the earth, the expanse, the sun, the moon, the stars, space as we know it in these first days. All space and matter were brought forth creatio ex nihilo, or from nothing, by the word of God. By the very word of God Almighty, both the world and the worlds were brought forth from nothing. World's that were brought into existence in an instantaneous moment, a moment which was only able to be a moment and only able to be measured as recorded as being a moment in the beginning because the one who also created time said, this is the beginning. In the beginning, God, the one who existed from before time began, who has always existed, the eternal, triune, Jehovah God, Yahweh, the great I Am, began the earth's preparation for habitation. The earth, which was originally formless, it was shapeless, but would be shaped. An earth which was originally void, uninhabited, empty, no life, at least for the first four, literal 24 hours, some 6,000 years ago. That's when God began to create and provide all essential elements for life on this planet. There was dark, then there was light, there was day, and there was night, heavens, clouds, the Atmosphere, land-making seas, fruit born from trees, plants with their seeds, the greater light of the sun, the lesser light of the moon for signs and seasons, days and years, all gracious gifts given according to the sovereign goodwill and mere good pleasure of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who all work together in perfect concert, perfect unison with one another, in full preparation for this very day. This fifth day, when an awesome, magnificent, miraculous new work would take place. Namely, his bringing forth life. Conscious life, which was different than anything he had spoken into existence at this point, up to this point. We said last week, the sun and the moon were not living They weren't conscious of their existence. They certainly aren't deities to be worshipped like Ra, the sun god in Egypt, or Allah, the moon god of Islam. They aren't deities to be served, but entities created to serve, to serve us, human beings who would come along some 48 hours later. None of these lights, the greater, the lesser, nor the stars above, are alive nor are the plants. Plants don't possess this conscious life. Plants are not truly living creatures, regardless of what you may hear. A few years ago, some interesting research was conducted, highlighted in an article by LiveScience.com, who said, a new study suggests that plants stressed by drought or physical damage may emit ultrasonic squeals. In times of intense stress, people sometimes let out their angst with a squeal. I don't know who squeals in times of stress, but that's what they said. Scream, maybe. People, let, people sometimes let out their angst with a squeal. 
And a new study suggests that plants might do the same. Unlike human screams, however, plant sounds are too high frequency for us to hear them. That's convenient. But that's what it said here. Quote, when scientists place microphones near stressed tobacco plants, the instruments picked up the crop's ultrasonic squeals from about four inches away. It's fascinating. Screaming tobacco plants? No, that's probably just early onset emphysema. That's a tobacco plant joke. (laughs) Sounds to me like someone's got an agenda to push. Screaming plants and trees? I've seen that movie too. If we make them mad enough, they'll start throwing their apples at us. Like they did with Dorothy and that dancing scarecrow. Trees aren't alive. Come on. They're not conscious of their existence. Plants aren't alive. Certainly not in the sense that humans are alive or even as animals or fish are alive. In fact, they're there to serve the humans and animals too. They're there for our food, medicine, shelter, the oxygen-carbon dioxide exchange, meaning this fifth day is more significant than we think. This new creative work. Look again at verse 20 where... The swarms of swarms are created. This term swarm or team, uh, sarat, speaks of a dense, heavily populated, concentrated group of sherets, living creatures, which is what Moses says. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Not that the waters brought forth the creatures in their own strength or by their molecular structure coming together through some electromagnetic charge or something, but that, that by the word, by the mere declaration of God Almighty, vast groups of living creatures, specifically fish, instantly appeared, teeming together, uh, swarming, swimming, and schooling in the now contained and restrained oceans, seas, lakes, and rivers. Again, this is something new. This is something different from the previous four days. We didn't hear this of, of plants back in the third day. We are, uh, All we heard was, let the earth sprout vegetation. And the earth brought forth vegetation. But now, life. Conscious swarms of life created in an instant. And incredibly, not only was all life now populating the hydrosphere instantaneously, but again, God would speak into existence those living creatures which would occupy the atmosphere. Then God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the Birds fly above the earth across the face of the expanse. The birds flying across the face of the expanse or firmament of the heavens. Swarms of swarms in the waters and swarms of swarms in the sky like that. This is incredible. It's incredible. One of my favorite (coughs) sights in the whole world is to see the swarming of the starlings at dusk. You ever seen that? It's like a gift from God as you drive through some of the most painfully boring parts of this country, these long, straight highways which are surrounded by vast farmlands and fields and billboard after billboard boasting of the world's largest gopher or rubber band balls just 60 miles ahead, followed by a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus giving you a thumbs up as you long for your next exit. Just when it seems like you're going to nod off or puke from the second full bag of sunflower seeds you've consumed for the day. You look out and you see this massive cloud of what appears to be this black, billowy smoke. But you know it's not smoke because it's moving in such a majestic, synchronized pattern. What this is is a massive swarm of starlings. What scientists have called a murmuration of starlings, which, quote, consists of as many as 750,000 birds who have joined together in flight. These birds spread out, then they come together, they split apart, then they fuse together again. Murmurations constantly change direction, flying up a few hundred meters, then zooming down, almost crashing to the ground. They look like swirling blobs, making teardrops, figure eights, columns, and other shapes. A murmuration can move fast as starlings fly up to 50 miles an hour without smashing into one another in the process. And even if they did, guess what? Like the sparrow, not a one of them would fall to the ground apart from their father. Why? Because he knows them. 
They belong to him. He created them. <clears throat> that word for create there in verse 21 is barach. Barach. You've got to put some phlegm in it, I hear, or else they won't take you seriously. Roll those R's a little bit. That's the same uh, word we saw back up in verse 1, right? In the beginning, God created barach, the heavens and the earth. Here in our verse 21, point 2, God created the sea monsters. Every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now in the coming weeks, we'll begin to elaborate on this when we get into some land animals. And then, of course, Adam formed from the dust of the ground. But I thought this was important this morning, that we see the scope of the divine work performed here on day five. Day five is fascinating to me. It's almost like the forgotten day of creation. Think about this. A whole day is taken just to fill the seas and the skies. The same amount of time was used to create all the planetary bodies in the heavens. It was not only the sun and the moon and the stars that were created on that fourth day, but everything, the, the, everything that's in the vastness of space, the, the billions of galaxies, these massive solar systems, trillions of ginormous stars, along with black holes and quasars and comets and everything else, that which we can only see as blurry little dots with our most powerful and expensive telescopes. And yet, he took the same amount of time to create these swarming living things, these swarming and soaring things relegated to this, in comparison, teeny tiny little globe that we know as Earth. From the smallest to the largest fish, from the largest to the smallest bird, some folks think that this term here can include winged bats. Even insects, similar terms are used in Leviticus to describe detestable things, maybe so. Uh, We don't know that for sure, but we do know that from the tiniest of the forest hummingbirds to the great ostriches of the African plains, all of their origin can be traced right back to here on the fifth day of creation when they were created as birds, right? According to their kind. What kind? The bird kind, the They were like plants in this regard, slight variation within the kind, the species, but no reproduction outside of the kind, no mixing of kinds. In other words, birds make birds, cats make cats, dogs make dogs. Of course, there are catfish and bird dogs, but those don't count. (laughs) Here in verse 20, we see the creation of the living birds in vast numbers, perhaps millions at a time, who now populated and occupied the skies in an instant. Oh, and fully mature as well. These were full-grown birds here, flying, gliding, diving, nesting, seed, and fruit-eating birds created in an instant, ready to go. I heard one, one preacher ask, uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, that's easy, the chicken. She was created fully mature on the fifth day, Right? So that's the skies. But what about the seas? What about the sea creatures? What does this mean? Uh, Sea monsters that we read here. Well, contrary to the myth of evolution, and it is a myth, uh, which says that marine life evolved first from bacteria, followed by plants, then birds some three to four hundred million years later, the sovereign God of the heavens and the earth gives us a much more simple and realistic and truthful explanation of their origins. Plants, trees, that was yesterday. Uh, sun, moon, that was yesterday. Today, uh, birds. Uh, birds. Oh, and verse 21, God created the great sea monsters. The sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kinds. Sea monsters? In the world, is this about sea monsters? At first glance, this looks like more pagan superstition here. Or could this be a nod to the great Loch Ness monster? Could it be a nod to the great monster of Loch Ness in Scotland? I love what S. Lewis Johnson said about this verse. The term sea monsters would appear to include all large sea animals, even the monsters of the past that are now extinct unless there is one swimming around in Loch Ness. Now, he said, the Japanese have a scientific expedition that has gone to Loch Ness to look for the monster of Loch Ness and others also who have been there with their cameras taking pictures of other strange things in the waters. 
But they told us in Scotland when we got to Loch Ness that we were much more likely to see a monster in that lake if we went by the pub first. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Uh, again, this mention of sea monsters is likely a reference to whales, and that's how it's translated sometimes. Uh, big sharks, other massive aquatic life. But also think of the historical context here. We've talked about these kooky legends crafted in the wicked hearts and imaginations of men, which, remember, included sea gods and sea goddesses and, of course, great sea monsters. Interesting, the, the word monster here is tanin, which actually means dragon. And, and elsewhere, we, we see allusions to leviathans, other massive aquatic creatures described in some length. And while I can't say for sure that that's what these were, I don't think it's out of the question to assume that he's talking about some pre-flood creature, like a dinosaur, either swimming or soaring. We just don't know for sure. But one thing we do know, uh, Moses is clearly saying here, yeah, anything in the sea, any of the living things in the sea were created by God. And not only that, but they were created as good. From the greatest monsters of the great deep to the smallest living organism and some cling, uh, clinging to some rock or frag in the ocean, at least at this point, God saw what he had created both in the skies and the sea, and he saw that it was good. It was agreeable. It was beautiful. It was pleasing in his sight. But that's not all. God also blessed them, didn't he? He, he blessed them. Uh, I haven't seen anything else that's been blessed thus far. Have you? Have you seen a personal blessing from God? No, I've seen a, a commanding. I've seen a delegating and assigning. Greater light, lesser light. You rule this, you rule that. I've seen a bringing forth land. You come up, make seas. Plants sprout out of the ground, but no blessing on them. No blessing yet here. As clear as day, God created the fish and the birds. Then God blessed the fish and the birds. <clears throat> now, I feel like I have to apologize for my outline today. Such a bad outline. I confess I'm a slave to alliteration. I can't control myself. I must do it. It helps me. But I, I admit, even the blessing to breed even had me rolling my eyes. Uh, Having said that, though, having said that, you tell me what would have been better here. Verse 22, look at what it says. Then God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. Then God blessed them. He enabled them. He endowed them, one commentator said, with both the ability to... Uh, and the mandate to reproduce, to multiply, and to breed. To breed? Yeah, to breed, which, let's admit, is a true blessing from the Lord. Quote, a divine blessing which occurs after works of creation and is intended to, excuse me, and is intended to continue that work. The word of blessing guarantees success. This word means to enrich, to endow, and the most visible evidence of that enrichment is productivity or fruitfulness. Again, we'll look more at the, this mandate in the coming weeks and the similar blessing bestowed upon humans, but here on this fifth day, this first day of new creation, new actually living creatures created with life in them are blessed and they're exhorted to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the skies, to Fill the seas and multiply on the earth. And that's exactly what they've done. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, now. <clears throat> I wanted to be intentional about leaving some time here this morning to consider the magnitude and the sheer awesomeness of what we just read here. We've seen the swarming of the swarms, from the monstrous to the minuscule, from the greatest to the least. These birds and fish brought forth blessed in a single 24-hour day, the fifth day. But while all this is absolutely incredible, we must again avoid the temptation to give greater acknowledgement and admiration to the wonders of creation than we do its creator. Okay? And to do that, let's talk sparrows here for a minute. Okay? Five for two in Jesus' day. Five living, breathing, flying creatures 
for two cents. Again, that's what the world asaria means, which we'll see here in a moment. Two pennies. You want to talk about insignificant. Sparrows were the cheapest things sold in the market, not sold as pets, but sold for food. Even the lowest of the low didn't grow, go, go hungry with the cost and availability of sparrows, yet they didn't even have to go to the market because these little birds were everywhere. Just catch them in a net and put them on the fire. But if you were too lazy, if you're not much of a hunter, there was a Kentucky Fried Sparrow on every corner. Okay, They were readily available. They were extremely affordable, meaning they were not valued in that society at all, whatsoever. And frankly, they're not valued in this society either, even though they're so darn cute. You know, they say there's about 1.6 billion little sparrows flying around the atmosphere today, and that's got to be true because there's a .6 attached to it. (coughs) We wouldn't just want to say one and a half billion sparrows out there. Then folks would be like, yeah, right. But 1.6 billion, oh, that sounds accurate. Now we're talking. But now we're talking. Now, again, a sparrow has a typical lifespan of five years. Throughout history, there's been 1.5 billion of these things at any given time. Now, I'm not a mathematician by any means, but if each sparrow has a lifespan of five years and there are 1.5 billion of them at one time and they've been around for 6,000 years, well, we're talking about trillions upon trillions of sparrows here. It's amazing. That's not the really amazing part, though. The really amazing part is this. Those trillions of little chirping, hopping, swooping, nesting, flying creatures, these creatures of great insignificance to all of us and to all the world throughout the ages, each and every one of them who is living or has ever lived is or has been significant to the Father. In fact, he knows each one of them. He feeds each one of them, and he is aware when each one of them falls to the ground and dies. He knows the sparrows. He knows every intricate deal, uh, excuse me, intricate detail of every single sparrow, for he gave every sparrow its life, and he sustains their life, and even allows them and blesses them by enabling them to breed, to Reproduce, bringing about more little sparrows, all of whom he knows fully. Fully. He knows the sparrow. He knows them all. He knows them all individually, just like he knows all the rest of their kind. Any of the other 50 billion birds flying around or nesting on the earth right now, not a one of which drops to the ground without his knowledge. Same for the winged insects, the creeping things, reptiles, the aquatic life, and the mammals. He knows every bird. He said it himself, right from Yahweh himself. Thus saith Yahweh in the 50th Psalm, I know every bird of the mountains. Everything that moves on the field is mine, he said. He knows every bird. He knows every fish. He knows every creature who has ever lived. He knows them all because he knows all things. This is the omniscience of God. Omni, all, scientia, knowledge. All knowledge. All knowledge. And because he is infinite and perfect in all his ways, divine omniscience means that God and God alone is the possessor of perfect, limitless knowledge. Meaning he knows everything. He knows everything about everything. Jesus even says it in Luke 12. You can start to turn there now. He says, The Father knows all the hairs of your head. He knows all the hairs on your head. Said to be about 100,000 on average. We'll just leave it at that. The, the, The perfect creator has perfect knowledge. Perfect knowledge of all things, past, present, and future. He is limitless unrestricted in his knowledge. Not like us. We are extremely limited in our knowledge. When we get a little bit of knowledge, we start getting puffed up. But there is an extraordinarily vast gulf that lies in between the knowledge of God and even the most brilliant minds in the history of 
the world. He said through Isaiah chapter 55, verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Example, there is not a sparrow that falls to the ground apart from his knowledge. This is exceedingly incomprehensible knowledge that we're talking about here. The depths of which are almost so unfathomable that it's hard for me to put them into words. So let's just let Jesus say it instead, okay, in its proper context. Context is key, my brothers and sisters. Context is key. By this time in Luke 12, Lord Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He sent out the 12, the 70. Peter has confessed him as the Christ. He's gone up the Mount of Transfiguration to meet with Moses and Elijah. He's fed the multitudes from five loaves and two what? Fish, that's right. He's been healing people of various diseases, demonic possession all along the way. He's coming up from Bethsaida. And Luke says back in chapter 11, verse 14, he was casting out a demon which was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, the crowds marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub the ruler of the demons. We know these guys would prove to be the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious authority in Israel, whom he would go on to hammer with woes. Woe to you, he says, you are fools, blind guides, false shepherds, snakes, vipers, whitewashed tombs, right? Then he leaves them. That's where we pick up in chapter 12. Look with me at your own Bibles. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. At this time, After so many thousands of the crowd had gathered together, they were trampling on one another. Thousands upon thousands of people. Some might even say swarms of people. Waves of people pushing in, trampling themselves with no regard for others as they longed to hear this man or even better touch this man or even best have this man touch them and heal them of their afflictions or those of their friends or their kids. And that's understandable, right? If your kid was sick, wouldn't you do everything in your power to get them to him? Sure. Yeah. Well, that's what we have here. And after thousands of people had come to him, he began saying to his disciples first, listen to what he says. Be on your guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, hidden that will not be known accordingly. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are we talking about here? How can this be? What we say in the dark is known? What we whisper in the inner rooms is known? How is it known? Those rooms were at the center of the houses. This is where valuables were stored. There's no windows in the inner room. There's just one door. We're surrounded by walls here. How can secrets told in there be revealed? There's nobody in here. It's just us. How will they be proclaimed? By whom will they be proclaimed? Look what Jesus says in verse 4. But I say to you, my friends, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one whom, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now the sparrows. Are not five sparrows sold for two asarias? Yet, not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear you are more valuable than the sparrows, than many sparrows. It's amazing how context can change things, right? What are we talking about here? What's with the sparrows? We're talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, religious hypocrites who appear clean and righteous, holy on the outside, but are like open sepulchers, above-ground tombs, washed in limestone to give the appearance of purity, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones and dirt and spiderwebs and worms and maggots and utter filth. 
What he's saying here is you humans, you may be able to fool one another, but we will never fool the one who knows all things. He knows all things, my brothers and sisters. To what extent does he know all things? Even when an insignificant little birdie falls to the ground, he knows. Even when a, a, a follicle sprouts another hair atop your head, he knows. Even what we whispered behind closed doors and in conference rooms and offices and our cars or on our cell phones or in our text messages are heard with crystal clarity by the all-knowing God. Even what we do in the shadows, he sees as if it were performed in the noonday sun, for darkness is as light to him. Even in the darkest, deepest recesses of our hearts, the inner rooms of our hearts, the secret places, that which we would be terrified if anyone else were to discover, he knows them. He knows them all together, every word, every deed, sure, easily. Even before a word is on our tongue, on our lips, he knows it all together. He knows what we say before we say it because he knows every thought that proceeds from our hearts, every meditation, every inclination, every temptation, every desire, every vain, glorious motive, our foolish pride, our Greed, our anger, that which we lust after, that which we covet, our idolatry. And he knows every good thought, okay? He knows uh, every pure motivation, our sincere worship, our sincere praise, our genuine adoration of him, our longings for others to know this gospel. Uh, He knows of our deep, deep longings to depart from this life and be with him in glory forever. He knows. He knows everything. There is nothing that is hidden from his sight. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? More importantly, much more importantly, do you understand what Jesus is saying to you? In context, his big takeaway for these guys is, you see how these religious folks treat me. If they treat me like this, how do you think they're going to treat you when I'm not here? But you know what? Don't fear them. Don't fear other people. Don't compromise, don't, don't compromise on what you know to be true about your creator to impress or appease other fallen sinful men and women. Don't do it. It's not worth it. But specifically, be on your guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Don't fear man. Do not fear man. No matter how high and mighty they think they are because of their temporal position in society, even in religion. Rather, fear the one, the only one, who has the ultimate say over your life, both this life and the next. Fear the one who has the power to determine the eternal destination of your everlasting soul the very moment that you pass from this earth, which could be at any second now as you sit there hearing his word. I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet, not one of them is forgotten from before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are are more valuable than many sparrows. That's right. We're more valuable than many sparrows. In the next few weeks, we're going to learn about just how valuable you are. I don't... Read about any birds being sovereignly regenerated and granted access into glory for all of eternity with Christ to be in the presence of God, do you? No, but I do read of many human beings being granted eternal life in his presence. Well, why is that? Because we have been made in his image. We have been made a little lower than the holy angels. We have a conscious awareness of our existence. We have both a conscious awareness of our existence and an ability to reason, okay, to distinguish between right and wrong and, and to consciously interact with our Creator one way or another, okay? Either through sincere communion and fellowship experienced by those who have been graciously forgiven of their sin, the many who have turned to their Creator and believed in His gospel, those who have been redeemed through the sacrifice of 
the Son of God, those who have been washed in the precious blood of Christ that was spilled on Calvary's cross, those who have been granted new life through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, those who have been reconciled to a holy God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or in our rejection of him, in our denial of him, which is oh so common in our world today, isn't it? We all know there is a God. These atheists are not fooling anybody. Everyone knows there's a God. We all know of God. We all interact with God, but not everyone will respond to God with true and saving faith and in humble repentance. Only God knows who that is. Only God knows. I don't know who's saved in here. Only God knows. Only he knows who are truly his. He knows everything, okay? Nothing escapes his knowledge. Nothing escapes his knowledge. As the writer of Hebrews said, you turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 4, you look at it. Don't just take my word for it. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. You got to see it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. You see it in your own Bibles. says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things, how many things? That's right. All things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. All things are uncovered, laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. That's just reality. And that is a reality that's either super comforting or super terrifying, depending on the state of your heart and the state of your soul. Psalm 33 says, Yahweh looks from heaven. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who forms the heart of them. He who forms the heart of them all, he who understands all their works. Psalm 139, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar, you scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. How many of my ways? All my ways. All of them. David said to Solomon, 1 Chronicles 28, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. Know him. Know, know him and serve him with a whole heart and delighted soul. Yahweh searches all hearts, understands every intent of the thought. Again, this is either an extremely comforting reality or an extremely terrifying reality, depending on the true position and condition of your heart and everlasting soul. For the believer in Christ, the one who truly knows the God of Israel, comforting. Not always comfortable, because we still sin. We still fall short every single day. I don't know how many times I sinned this morning. But comforting in the fact that even knowing of our falling short, even knowing of all our sin, even knowing what miserable wretches we are, he still extends his mercy to us. He still extends his forgiveness to us. He still extends abundant, limitless, divine grace and love to us. He knows us and he cares for us, not only temporally, but eternally. Not only does he forgive us of all our sins, past, present, and future, but he has chosen to indwell us, to take up residency within our hearts where he informs us and conforms us and transforms us into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So now when those thoughts come into our minds and our hearts, we can say, Lord, I know you know what I just thought. I know you know what I just said or did because you know all things. I beg you, rid me of this. Cleanse me, wash me, change me, transform me. Give me the strength to repent, to 
Turn from my wicked ways and turn back to, back to you. And we have the assurance that he has washed us. And he does change us until one day we will be perfect just as he is perfect. But that's not the case for the unbeliever, is it? God knows their hearts as well. He knows their thoughts as well. He knows why they do what they do, when they do, how they do. And for them, whether they admit it or not, this is a terrifying reality. Which one are you? Which one are you? Do you hear the words, a sparrow does not fall apart from his knowledge and say, yes! I'm so, so thankful that he knows everything about me and yet has chosen to forgive me and to indwell me and to change me to be like his son? Or do you shudder at the thought of having to stand before him to give an account for what's going on in here? Which one? Which one are you? The good news is, if you can hear my voice this morning, by God's amazing grace, he has extended your life. A life so fragile that you could drop dead at any second, just like those pharaohs that fall from the sky. Any second. Any moment you could die. Sitting here in this chair. I heard someone yesterday, we had lunch with them, said a lady was sitting right up front, she just died right before the sermon. Right during Jesus loves me. What a way to go. You can hear my voice this morning. God has graciously extended your life. You could fall at any moment. That's a moment only he knows, for it's a moment he has sovereignly preordained for you to stand before him to give an account for what you have heard. Even today, recognize that he has extended your life to be able to make sure that your heart is right before him this morning. How? How is this possible? I'm glad you asked. It's by believing on Christ Jesus, confessing him as Lord, which is what he'll go on to tell his disciples in the very next words. I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Can you imagine being denied before the angels by Jesus Christ? He's going to do it. He's the one that sits on that great white throne at the end of Revelation. He... He's the one that said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not prophesy? Did we not? And I will say to them, depart from me. Be gone. I never knew you. My brothers and sisters, the same God who made the first birds on the fifth day and has known every bird that has ever flown in the atmosphere since knows you personally. Personally. He knows everything about you. And my charge to you personally this morning, not your wife, not your husband, not your daughter, not your son, not your cousins, not your neighbors, not your friends, not the guy sitting next to you, not your buddies, but to you personally, sitting in that chair, hearing God's word. My charge to you personally is to let every bird you see be a reminder that we serve an omniscient, all-knowing God who alone is worthy of our praise and adoration. He knows all, whether great or small. The question I want to ask you is, do you know him? Sincerely. Remember, he can see the heart. Do you know him sincerely? Do you know who he has proven himself to be, not only in his glorious creation, but in his written revelation, in his word? Are you absolutely sure that you belong to him this morning? If not, I would implore you to, with all sincerity, flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the wrath to come by 
confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, I would earnestly beg you to come to him this morning. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. To to come to him in humble and sincere contrition, asking him to soften your heart to the truths of his gospel. And if it's not sincere, then ask him to make it sincere. He will do that. He he can do that. I, I bid you this morning, come to Christ. Believe on Christ. I bid you, bend the knee to Christ to be saved from the wrath of this infinitely wise, infinitely holy, all-knowing God and to be saved to everlasting life with him and glory. Glory in the new heavens on the new earth, all by his grace and all for his glory. Would you do that this morning? Would you come to him? Let's continue. Let's uh, pray now as we close our time together and then we'll have Noel, uh, excuse me, Tim and Noel. And the music team come up and close us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, uh, I speak on behalf of the congregation of believers to say that we take great comfort in the fact that you know all things, that you know the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts this morning, that you know who we are, what we've done, what we've said, what we've thought, and yet... By your abundant mercy, your amazing grace, you have still chosen to love us and to save us and to redeem us. And why we were still sinners, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us. We take great comfort in this, Lord. I, I pray for anyone here who, who, is, who, who is wrestling through whether or not they are truly saved. I pray that you would... Make this a reality in their life, that you would, if they're not, sovereignly regenerate their souls, that you would soften their hearts to your truth, that you would save them from your wrath and save them to an eternity with you. I pray that you would do this all by your grace and for your glory. You are worthy of their praise as well as ours. And it's a delight to give it to you now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing.